But have you noticed that um, togetherness isn't always happening? Uh, For instance, there's just something inside us that wants to find our group. And it's not just our group, a group that we can belong to, but it's a group that is exclusive to others. Um, you know, it's, it's something ingrained in us. It's in our flesh. You see this at a very early age, even with little children, uh, like, for instance, playgroups of three, when they're really small, don't work really well. Why? Because two pair up and one is left out, just kind of sitting there with the teddy bear. And it's just, I don't know what it is. There's just something like, you'll be my friend. I'm your friend, and we're not anybody else's friend. And we form this little group, and then and it takes right off from like two and three, and then you hit the playground. And I know none of you had this experience, but you didn't get picked at recess. There wasn't room for you on the merry-go-round. There were five swings, and there were six of you, and like, you're not a really good swinger anyway. Why don't you sit out? And so next thing you know, you're standing by the pool, right? I, I'm explaining this to you because no one ever had that experience, right? Ooh, okay. Uh, and maybe you were the one who said, uh, we draw the line right here, and you're out. And it, and it, and it happens at uh, junior high, high school. Oh, my goodness. This can be just devastating, this, this bridge of separation that takes place. These are our friends. We're in this group. You can't sit at my table. I don't talk to you because you're not in my circle. Or you look different from me. Or you obviously have a different background. Or I don't think we're in the same socioeconomic status. So we just don't really associate and, of course, you see it even with adults. You know, I was, uh, last time I was on a plane, I was, I was kind of reminded of this, this tendency to separate. Uh, you notice that it gets started, like, before you get on the plane. Can we have all the first-class passengers, please, come? You know, and, they, and so the first-class people, they all, and, you know, they're like, I'm first-class, right? And they, they get in there, and this is a parade, okay? This is all a show and design and stuff. And so they get there, and they get them all seated there, you know? And they get them, they get them water, you want something to drink, you need a little snack to kind of get you through this next few minutes while we're loading up the other passengers. Not a problem. You need a warm towel to damp your face, and they pull it out of the little microwave, and they hand it to you. Well, then, then after all the first-class people are all settled in, and they're luxury recliners, right? Then they start bringing cattle class in, okay? And that's where I fly, right? And they... uh and they and you and they call you in by sections. It's not much different than the ear tag, okay? And they all right, if you're in section fifty three or whatever, and they and so and you kinda go in and you have to pass the folks that are in first class. You know, they're all spread out. You have these huge gapping holes on both sides. You're just like this, and you're walking in with your luggage, you know, and all your four kids, and you're trying to make your way through there, and you're going through the back and, and there's eye contact. Right? You had this. I have. And like that's right. You're different than me. I'm, I'm going to the back of the plane with all my kids in there. And there's this separation that takes place. And that separation continues throughout the flight. So, for instance, you, you know, I, I've noticed this. You, you look up front and I'm always curious, like, what are they eating up there? Because they got these china and they got glasses and I don't know what they're pouring with these bottles. And they're serving up these fine meals. And I know that that's my cue that my meal's coming too, right? And, and so sure enough, there's this beetle, beat up metal cart. This lady's pushing through there and shoving it through the plane. And, and you know, you, you have your choices. I mean, they treat you right. You can either get a, a bag of four and a half pretzels. They're little, okay? Or you can get that, that little bag of, of 12 peanuts. They're unsalted, okay? And you have your choice. I mean, and they're up there dining away and wiping themselves with their warm towels, and you're back down there in cattle class, and, and then they make an announcement. Now, with security issues, they used to draw that curtain across, remember? It was kind of like the Berlin Wall. You just aren't crossing here, right? 
We got the haves and the have-nots, okay? And so they draw that curtain, and now because of security measures, they can't do that. But if you notice, they still communicate in such a way like we have a lavatory for those in first class. So the eight people up there, there's one lavatory. And for the several hundred of us back in cattle class, I mean, we're all cramped in there. There are two beautiful restrooms in the very back of the plane. And and, and they're used all the time because they're feeding all these kids Coca-Cola, okay? They're drinking it. goes right through their system. They're running back there. There's the big lines. It's a total mess back there. And there's this, this wall of separation between those who have and those who have not. And, yet, you know, I point this out to you because this, has a, this is a, just kind of a picture of kind of how it is in life in society. Have you noticed how we're so into labels Clothing. I mean, we're like, has it got a little horse on there? You know, you're trying to figure that out. Or, That's a fake horse. That's not the real thing. It's just, it's all about labels, right? And and we put it on clothing and our food and a thousand other items. But but do you notice that um, we sell labels in our minds on people? It happens all the time. Unfortunately, it's probably even happened this morning. We we try to figure out if folks are intelligent, and we have folks that are. I try to figure out, are, are these folks kids fast learners or slow learners? So a little label on them. And then, and then like about their money. Are these are people with means. They have lots of money. They're rich. Are they, they're poor. Or, or here's a huge one, physical appearance. This person's beautiful. And so you start making all these assumptions that everything in their life is just golden and beautiful and perfect. And this, oh, my goodness. And then, and what we do, and of course, we don't say anything, but boy, we've taken that little staple gun and we've put labels on all these beautiful people, not so beautiful people, and we, we put these labels on people. We do it uh, with athletics. Like here in the state of Texas, if you're a good, young, promising athlete, you're called a what? Oh, my goodness. Really? Do you need someone from the Northwest? It's called a blue chipper. Didn't anybody know that, right? Blue. Okay, thank you. Okay. You're, oh, that's a blue chip athlete, man. They're stud. This, this gal, she's going to be it. And they're, well, they're just, they're okay. Not really okay even. And we put these labels on people. You know, and I, I say this, it's dead silent here because we're like, whoa, I'm nervous because he is hitting on something that happens even in my life. And friends, what I just talked about, it even happens in the church. You know, we are, we're big into discrimination. Discrimination takes a legion of forms. I mean, we live in a society that discriminates. Okay? It, it just happens all the time. This is the world in which we live. And it is amazing how the world's values infiltrate the church of God. Let me just tell you about discrimination where you see it. You see it. You see, like, economic discrimination. All these different statuses. And you just try to figure out, what, what are they driving? Where do they live? What are they wearing? Okay, and, he, and we just we just start discriminating. There's academic discrimination, those who have higher education, and those who had a good time in high school and junior high, and it was more fun to not be there, and you know whatever. And they we create this little this system of discrimination. Uh, there's sexual discrimination between males and females. He wouldn't really be a very good job at that job, or she wouldn't. And we just we put these little labels. We discriminate. There's some one that you may not think of, but is a very real tension. Folks from the city versus folks from the country. And, and I, you know, this is something uh, having kind of come from, you know, spent some time in the country. 
and spent some time in the city, uh, I've seen this firsthand. And the idea behind it is that person from the city could never make it in the country. You stick them in a field, they get eaten by coyotes. They couldn't figure out how to get there. They can't do anything. They can't even change the oil in their car, right? And the other hand, the city folks do the same things to the country folks. You couldn't make it in my world. You couldn't even find the office. And, they, and there's this discrimination that just kind of takes place. There's discrimination uh, by age. They're older. Hence, they have nothing to, vo- to offer me. Many young people think. Or old people look at young people like, oh, you are wrecking our world. And there's this discrimination that takes place. Let me, let me tell you another one that takes place. Uh, I call it uh, theological superiority syndrome. And it's the idea that you got your brand of theology and you're right and everybody else is dead wrong. And you treat people that way. You give them the cool to the cold treatment. You've got a superiority issue in your life and you pass it on to others. And friends, you know, it says that perfect love casts out fear. But have you noticed how fear is remarkably successful in casting out love? Friends, I just want to, we're going to have a heavy duty talk. Just put your seatbelt on. Discrimination is a blight on our society. And it is a cancer in our churches, and it has to end. It is a very real issue. It's oftentimes overlooked, but the scripture takes it head on. In fact, James, this pastor in Jerusalem who wrote this book that we're at in James chapter 2, he is addressing it head on. Remember, James's whole issue is this. Remember the two-word theme for the book of James? Anybody know it? That's right, I heard it. Maturity matters. And he is writing about how you and I truly grow and mature in our faith in Jesus Christ. And so in chapter one, he talks about the mindset of a maturing faith in Christ. It's you know how we mature in Christ. We grow through trials. We persevere. We we overcome temptations. And then the final part, he says, and we looked at it last week, is that we are living out the truth. This is the mindset of the person who is growing and maturing in Christ. Beginning in chapter 2 all the way through chapter 5, verse 6, he's going to start listing and working through obstacles to a maturing faith in the Lord. And these are very real. They are very real from the time he wrote them in first century A.D. And friends, these are the issues we are facing today. If you do not overcome these obstacles, maturity is a myth for you. You are always going to be an infant in your faith because you've never gotten back past certain roadblocks. And the first obstacle he lists is this, the need to develop a love that sees through labels. If you can't do this, you can't mature. But when you, through the power of Christ, have the ability to love and see past labels, maturity becomes a reality for you. Now, does it shock you that the early church had problems like this? Well, let me ask you this. Uh, are, there, are there people in that church? Yeah. Are there people in our church? Yes, a whole bunch of them. You got people, you've got problems. The early church was not a perfect church. It was a church very much like ours that was progressing in growth and development in the Lord. The only thing perfect about Fellowship Bible Church is our Savior. Okay, that is true of every single church. But he is going to address the issue 
of discrimination and favoritism. And he's going to do it head on. Chapter two, verse one. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He says, this is all about your faith in the glorious, splendorous Lord, speaking of his deity, Jesus, speaking of the fact that he's fully human, he came to save Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, God's anointed one. Our faith is in him. And by the way, if you want to understand chapter two in James, it's all about understanding it's a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's glorious. He says, if you have a faith in the glorious one, what in the world are you doing messing around playing favorites? He says, do not hold your faith in the, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And the tense here actually says it's not like this could happen. Actually, in the Greek, it says this is happening. In fact, it's happening on a regular basis. You folks are playing favorites. And what are you doing? It is totally irreconcilable with your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he actually is going to spell that out, what this looks like. And if you're thinking, like, well, boy, that was a problem for the early church. No, it's a problem for our church, the church in America today. Think how starstruck we are. If only so-and-so athlete or that movie star or this politician became a Christian, why, why the church would take the world by storm. And we think like that. We make statements like that. Notice what he says. Friends, we've got an issue. We've got a problem. He spells it out. Verse two says, for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. And you say, oh, are we so glad to see you? You sit here in a good place. This would be like up on the, at the front. That's where in the early church, up at the front, or these key seats right here on the side here. He says, and you, we want you to come, and you have to have one of the best places. We're so glad you're here. You look good. We are so glad to have you. We want you up front. But he says, and you say to the poor man, you stand, oh, man, over there, or... Uh, I got a deal for you. You can sit up front too at my footstool. Sound good? Right there. Okay. And he says, and you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. He writes, verse four, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now, let me kind of tell you what's going on here. The issue here is not that wealthy people came to the church or poor people that came to the church. That actually has nothing to do with it. The issue is that the people in the church have a sin problem, a heart problem. They have an attitude toward favoritism, toward what the world values, people that look rich and are trusting in riches. Situation is this. They're having church and in polls, a limousine. Maybe it's a limousine camel. I don't know, but it was okay. It was obvious. And the guy shows up. And he is richly, wealthily decorated. I mean, he is wearing the best of clothes. And he's got stuff that glitters on him, you know. So you're like, whoa, what is that? You're just kind of captured by him. And notice what he, they point out there that he, the assembly, he enters with a gold ring. Okay? He's not only got, he's got fine clothes, he's got a gold ring. Now, Jews would sometimes actually uh, show their wealth by actually wearing rings on their finger. And especially the middle finger is the finger that you, you, you kind of would focus on that shows just how wealthy you were. Okay? 
Okay. Now, not everybody had the ability to do this. I actually read in, in some uh, ancient uh, research, they found that that not only would they wear rings, but there was actually the equivalent of like a ring rental business. Okay. It would be kind of like, you know, when you go to your class reunion, you know, and you, oh, I got to make this look good. And so you, uh, you rent things like I can't really afford this car. And so you you park your little Datsun truck that you've been driving around for the last 40 years and you uh, rent out this really nice car. It's kind of that idea that you make an impression. Well, you know, it's sort of like this. So like someone asks you, well, how are you doing? And you're like, I'm doing very well. Thank you. And then you shake their hand. Sorry, did my big rings cut you? You know what I'm saying? And the idea is that they're wealthy and they show off their wealth. And they, what happens here is that they're they're showing favoritism to this person. And then the the poor guy, it's obvious by his clothes, this man is a beggar. He has nothing to offer us. We're not really interested in this person. And so they treat him like like a like an animal almost. Like, oh, you're here. Ah, uh, well, we got places somewhere. Stand over here. You can sit at my feet. Well, I don't know. And and it's not just like this is bad hospitality at this church. You know what this is? It's sin. I'm not sure if you and I really think it's that big of a deal, but let me assure you: by the time we walk through this passage, you're going to have one thing clear: this is a huge deal to God. Discrimination favoritism. And so this is, he sets up this scenario. He says, you've made distinctions. It has nothing to do with the fact that rich men or people are coming to church or poor people. That's, that is not the issue. It's, it doesn't matter. The issue is the heart and how the church was responding into it. They were making distinctions. And notice what he said. Verse 4. I don't want you to miss this. Have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil Motives. There's a lots of words for evil and evil and wicked. This is the strongest one that is in the Greek language. It is absolutely deplorably morally corrupt. It is totally wicked. You have become a judge with a wicked motive. It's not that you're just not being nice. What the Lord is saying here, you're being wicked. And so he says, verse five, he gives them this admonition. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? He says, did not God choose? God makes the selection and he oftentimes chooses the poor of this world to be rich in faith. You see, when you don't have much or you don't have anything, friends, you you see this. God becomes everything to you. Because you don't feel like, hey, I don't, I don't have anything to trust in. I, I really, I put my hope, my faith, my trust in him. The, for rich, rich people, there's a reason why very few rich people will enter in the kingdom of heaven. This could actually be translated those who trust in riches. Doesn't, there's no problem with you having lots of money. The problem is if you are trusting in your resources and your riches and your money. It could be translated, those who trust in their riches. Friends, if you are trusting in your riches, you cannot at the same time be trusting in the living God. Remember what Jesus said? Listen, pretty easy. You can't serve God and mammon. Which will it be? God? Money. And let me assure you, money, resources, all your little stock options, your IRAs, 
They are. They are so alluring to our hearts. He says, you have become judges with evil motives. On the other hand, the rich, you, these, these people that are poor, that are placing their faith in Christ, God is going to make them great heirs in the kingdom. You see, when you and I leave this earth, there's not going to be anything about earthly riches. All of us, whether we have lots of money or little money, we're going to be rich in the things of eternity. In Christ, experiencing his righteousness, knowing the depth of forgiveness, his love, we are going to be wealthy in terms of our relationship with Christ. And friends, that's what really matters. That's what true riches are. Why do you have to feel like, oh, I've got to make a lot of money, only to find out this leaves you destitute, leaves you feeling cold and callous, and it's always, allure, always alluring your heart, trust in me, trust in me, trust in me, when you can have great joy in the living God. And so he says, you know what? The people that are chosen by God, like these poor people, you know how they demonstrate it? You look at the end of verse 5. They have a love for him. If you want to get to the quick on this one, where you're really at, do you love God? Do you have a love for Christ? If not, by the way, that's what Jesus is looking for. First place love. You might have a heart problem. Probably show up with how you deal with your money, how you view your God, and how you treat people. He says, verse 6, but do you know what you've done? You've dishonored the poor man. It is, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? It's, it's the people with money that are trusting in their money and they see you as a problem. They're the ones that are down on you. They're the ones that are blaspheming God, speaking ill of God and irreverent toward him. What are you doing? You're seeing like the world sees. Your standards are the world's standards. They shouldn't be that way. See people as God sees them. It doesn't matter if they have lots of money or no money. Look at their heart. See them as the people that they are. You see, what was happening here is that how they responded to rich people and poor people, it was a barometer of their heart. It was speaking of their true condition. And they were obviously more interested in power and money than they were seeing people come into the kingdom, especially people who are poor. Now, you can be rich. That makes no difference whatsoever in terms of how you are supposed to be evaluated and assessed and addressed at a church. Or you can be poor. You and I, as the body of Christ, we are called to love people for who they are and not see things like color or, well, this person's wealthy or they got lots of power. This is a power player in our city. God wants us to have his heart. He's, he is trying to drive this home. What you're doing, if you're doing this, it's evil. It is not what it's supposed to be. In fact, you are violating the very law of love that Christ has commanded you to follow. And so this is what he says, verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. We are called to follow the royal law. Why is it called a royal law? This is the law of Jesus. Jesus said, you know, on this, all the commandments of the prophets, all the law and the prophets hang on this. Love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you want a summation? You want it in real concise text form? This is it. Loving God, loving your neighbor. 
It is the royal law. Jesus actually on six different occasions spoke and quoted from Leviticus 19 here on this royal law of loving your neighbor. This is what we are to do. Now, who is your neighbor? That is a good question. There's a there's a pastor apparently that was preaching on the whole subject of loving your neighbor. And, and there was a guy sitting in church, probably like you. And uh, there was a little boy behind him. And the pastor was was really into it. And he wanted to really emphasize loving your neighbor. And so he kept asking this question. He asked it three times. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And then with everything he had, like, who is my neighbor? And the guy was sitting there. But the little boy right behind him, what, he, he said every time that the pastor said, asked the question, who is my neighbor? The little boy said, well, Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers, Mr. Mr. Rogers, it's your neighbor. He wants to be your friend. He sings about it, you know, and he's uh, the boy is trying to help the pastor out here. Yeah, Mr. Rogers. Yeah, okay, he's your neighbor. Great, but that's all fantasy land. I don't want to crush anybody's bubble there, but you know who your neighbor is? In the Old Testament, the Jews saw only fellow Jews potentially as being your neighbor. Jesus comes and he says, you know, boys, we've got, we have given you this word. We've given you God's word all along. And you got it all messed up here. By this point, you're all segregated. You got your little societies. You don't even have neighbors. Uh, Jesus says, you don't know who your neighbor is? Your neighbor is the person next to you. Your neighbor is the person who has need. And you have the ability to respond to it. Jesus says, you want to show love to someone? Uh, I want you, if you're going to follow me, I want you to love your enemies. Love love my enemies? Yeah. I I want you to love your enemies. Who is your neighbor? The people we come in contact with. This royal law that Christ has given us. Summed up here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, if you are doing this, you're doing well. This is great. This is maturity in action when you have come to the point in your relationship with Christ where you're no longer seeing labels, but you're truly loving people. It doesn't matter what their background or what color their skin is or where they came from or how they talk or what they look like. You got a love for the Lord that is being translated to a love for other people. Friends, you are doing well. So he says, friends, on the other hand, though, if that isn't the case, you got a huge problem. In fact, it's already occurring. You're showing favoritism. Verse eight, he says, if, however, you're fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But verse nine, if you show partiality, if you are showing favoritism, discriminating against people, showing partiality, Catch it. You are committing what? What is it? Sin. Not like a, oh, it's a small little deal. You should just be a little nicer to folks. No. You're committing a sin. Sin means to miss the perfect mark of living in the holiness of God. You've you've missed it. You've sinned and furthermore, he says, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You have, God has given his law The royal law is that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. You're probably pretty good at loving yourself, right? Clothe yourself. You feed yourself, right? Need a little sun. Need a little rest. You're always taking care of yourself. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not doing that, you are a transgressor when it comes to loving your neighbor. If you're not doing that, friends, 
it's not that you're just not being nice. Or you could reach out a little bit more to others. He says you're sinning. You are a transgressor, transgressor of the law of the Lord, the royal law. Now, uh, notice what he keeps on saying here, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Ooh. Now, let me tell you how God presents and views his law. I want you to think of a window pane, okay? And the law is like a window pane, okay? Then I want you to think of a hammer, okay? Got the picture? If I should take the hammer and I hit a particular place in the pane of glass, what happens? Does there just like right where I hit, there was just a little hole and that's it? Does anybody know what happens? It all shatters. See, God's view of his law is it is one unified whole. And to transgress or to violate even one aspect of it has rippling effects throughout the whole thing. The entity, the law itself, is broken. God gave us his law to show us how to live, to point the way. It is a whole, complete picture. God does not give us the liberty like pick or choose. Well, I'm going to follow that because I really like that, and this is hard for me, so I won't do that. No, it's all one. And the reality is, is that you and I, we can't keep any of it. We're all transgressors. On this issue of discriminating, showing favoritism, flat out, every single person in this room is guilty of violating that. What we need is a savior. We are guilty of breaking God's law. And you think, well, that's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. And, he's, and he so says, I'm not sure if you're getting this. So then he goes on. He's, he's really going to drive it, drive it home. He says, verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. So he says, verse 11, let me help you. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Okay. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. You broke the pane of glass. You broke the unity of God's law. Friends, if you have sinned, you've missed the mark. You've been discriminating, putting labels on people and living like it. You have transgressed God's law. Now, let me tell you, we are completely forgiven when we truly put our faith and trust in Christ. But he wants us to live out this relationship that we have with the Savior. And friends, if you are here today without Christ, have you been discriminating? Have you had even an attitude of murder or adultery? By the way, that's what Jesus said. You know, by the way, it's more than just actually committing adultery or murder. If this is your heart attitude, this is taking place up here while you're driving, while you're running around on campus. You are a transgressor. You are a sinner in need of a savior. That is why Christ came to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can truly be forgiven. But make no mistake. Once we come to know Christ, it doesn't mean like, well, I can do whatever I want. I'm forgiven. God doesn't care. Yes, he does. He's given his word. Jesus said, I thought you wanted to follow me. Remember what he said when he closed one of his messages? Hey, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? What's up with that? You call me Lord, but you do not follow what I say? God says that doesn't work. 
you're a transgressor. He says, I want you to live and walk and function completely differently. Verse 12, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. I want you to live in light of the reality that God has he is going to judge you, not in a law, a judgment of condemnation, but in a judgment that is liberty, freedom, forgiveness, because Christ has paid it all. That is why Christ came. He came to to pay the penalty for our transgressions. He is the legal payment. Someone's got to pay for our sins, our violation of the law, our breaking of the glass of his wholeness of his law. And you and I simply can't. That is why Christ has come down. He came to pay for it all. And when we are judged, we will be evaluated, not in terms of whether we go to heaven or hell, but in terms of our our works. We are judged graciously by the law of liberty because we've experienced the mercy of Christ. And so he ends in verse 13 with two proverbs. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. You see, what he's saying is, If you know the mercy of God, that should be reflected on how you treat other people. If you do not know the mercy of God, that's why we discriminate. That's why we play favorites. That is why our society is ripped up. And frankly, it's a major problem in our churches. If you have no mercy and you're not expressing that, then it's an indicator that you truly haven't known the mercy of God. Now, obviously, we're all sinners and we've transgressed. And these are believers that he's writing to. He calls them brethren. That means that as believers, we can do this. But it should not be the case. You know what he's after? Look at how he ends it. Verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That is what God wants. He wants mercy to triumph. Mercy triumphed at the cross. Mercy is why we have relationship with God. Mercy is how we're to treat people. You see, we demonstrate the reality of our faith by how we live. We got to get past the seeing past labels. We have to learn to love people for who they are. We have to see them as God sees them. This is the miracle of the new birth. This is the reality of the gospel in our life, that we are new creatures in Christ and we treat people differently. We got race issues in our society. You know who's supposed to take the lead for change? The church. Namely, God working through the church as his people respond to his word and do so by the power of his spirit. That is what is to take place. Mercy is the triumph. Mercy is the triumph. Let me tell you, the Christian response to discrimination is not reverse discrimination. It's not like, well, then we'll treat the poor like royalty and the rich like scum. That is not God's answer. Rather, what he says is we are to treat people without consideration of status, of race, of their economic standing, what they have or have not, what they look like, their athletic performances. We are called to live out the law of love and love people Truly as God does. And anything short of that is missing what he desires among mature believers in his church. You see, our life in Christ enables us to have a love that sees past labels. I'd like to ask a few questions. Um, 
How would a poor person feel walking into this church? Would they feel welcome? Would you get up and move and sit next to that person so that they would feel welcome here? Or would you go, I'm sure glad I'm not sitting by Mary because Mary's by that person. Would you? If a real wealthy person got dropped off by their limo, they heard some pretty cool things are going on here at Fellowship. They came in. Would that person feel welcome in our church? Would you reach out to them? Or would you go, oh, I got money. And, and would you? We, friends, we, we've got to answer these questions. Let me give you a few other questions here. Uh, in what ways do we consciously or unconsciously favor some people over others in our church? Is that, is that taking place? Is that happening? Um, and I'd like to ask, why would that happen? What's going on in here? What's wrong if that's taking place? Um, let me ask you this. And how could our ministry and all the ministries of our church, how could we reach out to people better without showing any discrimination? What needs to continue to take place? What needs to change? And then let me just ask one other question. What can we do? What can we do to finally just be free from being impressed by wealth and power? And I'll tell you, it is to see people as God sees them. It is to have such a love for God and the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ to follow his law of love that we will love you. It doesn't matter where you came from. And let me just tell you, like at Fellowship, just for some of you that are new here, like giving, you need to know that no one, I don't, no other pastor, no other elder, no one but one person in our church knows what anybody gives. And that's the bookkeeper. She tracks it. You get a statement, I guess, at the end of the year. And uh, I tell her, I want you to forget. You know why that's the case? Because it doesn't matter what you give. What matters is that we have the right heart toward you no matter what. Now, I can tell you that people at Fellowship give sacrificially, graciously, generously. But I have no idea who those people are. I know I'm speaking to them, but it doesn't matter in terms of how you're ministered to or cared for. God does not want us looking with the eyes of label. You see, we've got to learn how to see past labels, and it only comes from a deepening faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our heart is to reflect his heart, and his heart is a heart of love and mercy. We need to see people as God sees them. Yesterday was a big day, nine years ago. September 11th, 2001, something horrendous happened to our country. There was a particular church that had lost four people in that whole terrorist attack, the Brooklyn Tabernacle. One of their victims in that particular attack was a police officer. And Jim Cimbala, who is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, wrote of the experiences of what happened as a result of that, and specifically a funeral they had for one of their police officers in their church. He wrote it in a book, wrote it in the book You Were Made for More. And they apparently, because he was a police officer, they asked if the mayor, and mayor at that time, Rudy Giuliani, would come and to give a few words at this police officer's funeral. I'd like to read what he said. Rudy got up there and he said, You know, people, I've learned something through all this. Let me see if I can express it to you. When everybody was fleeing that building and the cops and the firefighters and the EMS people were heading up into it, do you think any of them said, 
I wonder how many blacks are up there for us to save. I wonder what percentage are whites up there. How many Jews are in there? Let's see. Are these people making $400,000 a year or 24000 or whatever? No. When you're saving lives, they're all precious. And that's how we're supposed to live all the time. How would you want the cops to treat you if you were on the 75th floor that day? Would you want them to say, oh, hey, excuse me, but I've got to get the bosses out first? <laughs> Not exactly. I confess, I haven't always lived this way, but I'm convinced that God wants us to do it. He wants us to value every human life the way he does. Simla wrote that the words in the mayor just moved everyone. And he wrote and said, I sat there thinking, my goodness, the mayor is preaching a truth that has eluded so many of our churches throughout New York and the country. He may have stood for other policies that I could not agree with, but on that day, he was right on the mark, and that truth penetrated my heart. You see, the world that you and I live in, it is falling apart. It is falling to pieces, and we are God's representatives. And we have people that walk through these doors. We have people that we mix it up with in the grocery store, on our campuses, at work, in our neighborhoods, and they will perish eternally Apart from truly knowing Christ, we can no longer be walking around discriminating or showing favoritism. All need to be rescued from the horror of an eternity apart from God. And if that is going to be a reality, friends, we're going to be a part of what God is doing. We need, through our relationship with Christ, to have a love that sees past labels. Our heart is to reflect his heart so that his glory will be made known through the church. Let's pray. Lord, we just sense you working in our midst. And Lord, you know how we have so often failed. Putting labels, got our tight group, no room for more. Lord, it's sin. We're not going to rationalize it. We confess it before you. And we so thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has cleansed us from all iniquity, all wrongdoing, all wickedness so that we might know the love and the life of forgiveness and true reality of relationship with your son. For someone who's here today, perhaps they have, discrimination is a major issue in their life. Maybe other sins that they've harbored in their heart, anger, adultery in their mind. And they've never trusted your son, Jesus. Would they now turn from their pride and their sin and just pray with me and say, Lord, you know I need you. And finally, I understand you have my heart. I trust you. I turn from my sin. Fill me with a love for yourself. And Lord, we ask that you would have your way in all of us, that our church, Fellowship Bible Church, your church would be a beacon of light of how to live and to love through our relationship with Christ, that discrimination would not be in this place or in your people. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name.